0: you have your Bibles, if you would open them, please, to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We will come to this text uh, a bit later. We return to the series on Kingdom Worldview on this last Sunday of 2021. My opening lecture at universities, I, I speak on Worldview and I present my students with a series of questions with Which, when they answer them, will provide them a framework of his or her worldview. And I've been following that pattern here in this series: Uh, 10 questions. Thus far, we've looked at three. Um, What is first cause? What is the nature of reality? And what is a human being? Today, we come to the fourth question, which is: what happens after death? And some of you might be thinking, this isn't really what I want to think about right now, at the end of a difficult year, during a pandemic, during a winter of death, as the president has called it. And I would say I don't blame you. But I don't think that avoiding or postponing the question is, in fact, the answer. And just think about the following The last verse that I read to you before communion. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Did we somehow forget that? Um, death is an important aspect of the gospel. The death of Jesus provides our redemption. Each of us is going to die unless the Lord returns. And what we think about death is, in fact, a very important part of one's worldview. It is a part of a kingdom worldview. The kingdom that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, by the way, in chapter six, or who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? So like it or not, we need to consider the question what happens after death. But there are several issues that we've already talked about that will provide a background to this. The first is, what is a human being, and what a human being is someone who is finite, who is limited, who is mortal and fragile. And so there should be already a recognition that there will come a time in our life when it will end. The other issue is that of time, which is something we've looked at, but I want to look at it again today. As human beings, we are so immersed in time that we are not able to see and understand time objectively. It is at the heart of our existence, but it is something that I think really we have a difficult time looking at. One writer put it this way, time is indeed the icon of our fundamental reality. Time is the only reality of life, yet it is a strangely non-existent reality. It constantly dissolves life in a past which no longer is and, f- and in a future which always leads to death. All generations, all philosophers have always been aware of the anxiety, this anxiety of time, of its paradox. All philosophy is ultimately an attempt to solve the problem of time. Another philosopher argued that the only way to understand these things is to be outside certain things. So, when you want to talk about life, in a sense, we need someone outside of life to explain it to us. The world, history, and, yes, even time. The answer for these things don't lie within them themselves. The mystery of time will always be something we cannot solve. And so... If we're going to understand time, we need someone who is outside of time who can, in fact, explain it to us. The Bible begins with the verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And a few verses later, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And here we set down the basic principle of reality that time is something God created. It is a created thing. Uh, Genesis 1 continues with the six days of creation and then the seventh day when God rested from the work of creation. Many people fail to recognize today that the seven-day week is based on God's creation. Now, time as a creation points to certain implications. First of all, God is not limited by time. Okay, there wasn't something before God. He is first cause. We saw that in the first question. And he is the one who created time. He is the creator and time is one of his creations Um, He stands above and beyond his creation And yet yesterday is Christmas We see God coming into time um, In the person of his son One cannot say God has to do this Or God has to do that Because these are the rules of creation God is only bound by his character The second thing we see is that while God is not limited, time is limited. It's something that is created. It's not infinite. Only God is infinite. Something that is created has a beginning and an end, and so it is with time. By the way, since we're created, that also means we have a beginning and an end. But not only is time limited, time is limiting. Okay? You know, in the same way that I cannot walk through these posts, because they're made of wood, they're solid, okay? Um, I cannot move backward and forward in time. I'm, if you wish, stuck in this moment, this present moment. It is the stuff of human imagination that people could go back to the past, or they can go to the future. Um, That time is sort of seen as this continuum, and you can sort of skip around if you want to. And that actually isn't the way it is. Time is limiting Memory can connect us to the past. We can remember things that have happened. And imagination can link us to the future where we imagine certain things can happen. But the reality is we live now at this moment in the present. And then we need to recognize that time has been affected by the fall. Now, Adam and Eve were limited by time even before they sinned. Okay? Because they were creatures. Okay? They are creatures. To be a creature is to be limited. But after they sin, now time becomes a burden. It becomes frustrating. How many of us wish we could go back in time and correct things? Or we wish that we were as we were when we were younger. But time is in fact a burden and it is frustrating. Human beings, as we've seen, are those who are dependent upon God. We have nothing that has not been given to us. Everything is, in fact, gift. Yeah. Our culture, however, prizes freedom, autonomy, and individualism. Yeah, and time, I think, really should shatter that, that illusion that somehow we have the freedom that we might imagine. We are all dependent humanly speaking, on our families, our communities, but fundamentally we are dependent upon God because we are creatures. Recognizing that we are dependent, everything we have is gift. Even time is a gift, but sometimes it can seem like a prison. So if you will look at Ecclesiastes 3, I'll read to you, uh, some familiar verses, verses 1 through 11, in which it seems that time has chained us, has imprisoned us. Verse number 1, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden that God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men that they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Again, a familiar passage, but if you think about it, in many ways it seems like it's so constricting that there, there are only particular times to do these things. But this is what God has imposed on us And we don't know the beginning from the end Only God knows these things Then one more thing And that is that time is redeemable It is the arena of redemption Um, Sunday, today is the first day of the week It is the day of resurrection It is proof of the redemption yet to come But unlike other things that are created We cannot shape or reshape time So, if in fact, let's say you cut down a tree, you could do many things with the wood. You could use it, you know, cut it into planks and make a wall or a floor. You can make a piece of furniture, a carved work of art, paper, and it goes on. That's not the way it is with time. Time is something that is created, but we cannot shape it or reshape it. We can use it well. We can understand that there is a beginning and that there is an end but we can't recreate it into something else. One of the interesting things about time is um, you know, where you're sitting right now in the pew, I can't sit where you are because you occupy that space. And yet, we all occupy the same time right now. Um, It's just really sort of an amazing thing, something that we share. We cannot occupy time exclusively. We can't say this is my time. People will say that oftentimes, but that's not the case. It's something we all share. And time is not something we can conquer. It doesn't say here, Damon, do with me what you will. It's never stationary. It keeps moving and it moves in one direction only. It cannot be stopped. One rabbi said that man transcends space and time transcends man. I'm not sure that we transcend space. Perhaps I misunderstand what he's saying. But time bends us all. It binds us. There's a time to do certain things. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are. If you're a hero or if you're a villain, famous or unknown, you're bound by time. We all are. How we view time affects how we view death and what comes after are at least three main schools of thought when it comes to the matter of time. The cyclical, which is usually considered an Eastern, uh, the chronological, which is considered Western, and then the covenantal, which is the Christian view. The cyclical view basically says we've come to the conclusion that life is short. So let's say this, that you don't only live once, that you get to come back and come back and you come back. It presents an entirely different perception of, of existence. That for them, time and history are cyclical. We all, it is said, experience successive reincarnations. That everything goes back to the place where it started. Um, time is seen as a wheel. What I find interesting about this is while... There's something that initially might be attractive. It's like, boy, if I could do this over again, this is what I would do. The problem is you don't come back as yourself in that view. And you don't remember what you did in the previous incarnation. But ultimately, what happens is people want to escape the wheel. As much as you're like, boy, that's great to come back and then come back and then come back. Um... And it was the Buddha who said, ah, I've discovered the secret of nirvana, how to get off the wheel, how to escape time. There is something, again, with the cyclical, I I don't think it comes out of nowhere. You know, the planets go around the sun. We have the seasons. By the way, that's why it's cold right now, because we're in the season of winter. Um, Spring leads to summer, summer to autumn, autumn to winter, and then we go back to spring again. So there is something about this cycle that we find in creation, okay? but we don't find it in time. This is not a Christian view. The Western view is the chronological view. In this view time is linear versus cyclical. However in the Western view there is no belief in God, transcendence, eternity, or the supernatural. And It's interesting that with the cyclical there is this this hint, this hint of the eternal. But in the Western view, the chronological view, we don't find this at all. It is time without eternity. The Christian view is covenantal. This is the view that we find from Abraham, those with the Abrahamic faith, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Quite different from the Eastern view or the Western view the Abrahamic view of time is based on revelation. As I said earlier, one philosopher said you need to be outside it, someone who's not bound by time who can then understand what time is. But we're inside time. So in order for us to understand this, we have to have someone who's outside it to reveal to us and that's what God has done. It's not through reflection like the Buddha, just sit there and meditate and then suddenly you figure it all out. It requires someone who is outside a system. I've mentioned this to you before, but some years ago I attended a conference in Bali and I was talking to one of the participants uh, and he's like, sorry, I had to cut this short. I want to go listen to this guy speak. Apparently he was quite controversial and into an Indian teacher. And so I said, well, I, I should go too and listen to this guy. Apparently he's interesting. But one of the things he said is that when you look at the Middle Eastern religions, which apparently he did not look on with favor, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, okay? They're based on revelation. But in the East, here in India, we're based on self-reflection. We don't need any outside help. Yeah, that that might sound good, but that doesn't work. We need someone who is outside of time who can describe to us what time is. We can't figure it out on our own. The truth is that God is sovereign. He has made us in his image. And in a real sense, we have freedom, too, within the confines of time. We're born with a freedom that we really, I think, don't fully understand. We can say it, but I don't know that we understand it but it is something precious. It is something unique among God's creation that God has put us here and he's given us a period of time in which we are born, we live, and we die. This is all a gift from God. There are a lot of implications of the Christian view. The first one of which is that time and history have meaning. Okay? And why do they have meaning? Because God gives it meaning. He gives our lives meaning. Each of us is not only unique and significant — I think we are — but we also have a unique and a significant role to play in human history, in our generation, in our own lives. The cyclical view, by the way, where you just keep coming back, ultimately uh, time and history are an illusion. They really don't have any significance. They are meaningless. As we've noted before, there are two words in Greek for time. One is chronos, from which we get the chronological, which is the Western view of time. It's a succession of linear events, one after the other. The other word is kairos, in which the moment is seen as having significance. It has the potential for good or for ill. Um, the example that comes to mind for me is a wedding. Um, The chronos of a wedding is the wedding will be at 11 a.m., okay? The reality is oftentimes weddings don't start on time. So what is important? The wedding, the kairos, the event, that's what has significance. But again, in a cyclical view, time is meaningless. In a chronological view, it's the events, but I won't say that they're meaningless, but the meaning is something that is given by us rather than by God so this is the crucial difference between the way we think in the kingdom and the way the culture around us thinks and that is what gives life meaning the covenantal view is that God gives us meaning he knows who we are and what we have done it means that at the end of our lives it is God who knows what our lives mean far better than we do ourselves. At the end of our lives, we may say, yeah, I lived a good life. Or we may say, I wasted my life. But it is God who gives true meaning to our lives. The chronological view, the Western view, is, yeah, we decide whether or not our lives are important or if we've done anything worthwhile. It is interesting, though, that among the chronological thinkers... You have the optimists and you have the pessimist. Um, I think the pessimists are truer <laughs> to their way of thinking. The optimists, I think, are optimistic for no good reason. Um, you know, the optimists are basically cheaters. They're taking the Christian view, get rid of God, and then, and then bring it over to the chronological view so they would talk about human dignity and truth and freedom reason science project uh, progress all of which come from the scriptures these are things which god has given us and reason now is replacing revelation so the chronological is really kind of scary because they take this burden on themselves i will do god's job i will say whether or not something has meaning We've talked about this before, um, so it may be familiar to you, but um, Bertrand Russell, a philosopher, said, modern techniques is uh, is giving man a sense of power, which is changing his whole mentality. It may be God who made the world. There is no reason why we should not make it over. Another optimistic philosopher said, impossible? No." For however far uh, modern medicine and techniques have fallen short, they have taught mankind at least one lesson, nothing is impossible. Well, if you know the scriptures, what does it say? With God, nothing is impossible. But the chronological view says with us, with human beings, nothing will be impossible. One more person said we attained a science and society in spite of God. Every progress is a victory in which we crush the deity. Yeah, exactly. You take the biblical view, but you get rid of God. And so history is seen as humanity's unbroken pursuit of freedom, power, and expansion. We got rid of God, faith in God, that's that's superstitious, that's tradition, and now we will stand on our own two feet. Um, The 20th century, I think, has really given a strong counter-argument to this. Uh, Goya, the famous Spanish painter, on one of his paintings, wrote at the bottom, The dream of reason produces monsters. And certainly the 20th century had its share of such monsters. If there is no meaning to time and history, except what we give it, then time and history become a terror. There is, there's that, it's just a sheer terror. I would suggest to you that we live in a society in which people have espoused aspects of the optimistic and the pessimistic aversions. But the bottom line is, there is still death, the reality of death. Progress seems to be the driving force between, behind chronological thinking, a word that has reshaped Uh, the modern world. In John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, progress refers to a journey. I've mentioned before that it used to be the king's progress in England would be a royal procession or parade along a particular road. And now it means something very different. Look it up when you get home, if you get a chance. Look it up in the dictionary, look for synonyms, advance, breakthrough, development growth, headway, improvement. Progress, by definition in today's world, is always good, self-evidently good, unquestionably good. If you look for the antonyms, the opposites of progress, you will see reactionary, passe, old-fashioned, traditional. Yeah, the bottom, bottom line is it's not good. You either do progress or you're just not doing what is right. And it's become a powerful word in our society and it affects people's view of time. Progressive has become a magical password that is used by various people to describe their position. The result is it cannot be challenged. They're moving forward. They're progressing. It's progress. Now, they don't believe that there's any end, okay? They don't believe that God created time. And it is so something that they can grab hold of and we can make progress. And yet there is the reality of death. The claim for progress is, in fact, a parasitic view or parasitic position on the biblical view of time and hope. When progressives speak of that which is hopeful, they have no standard by which to judge G.K. Chesterton said, progress is simply a comparative of which we have not settled the superlative. Good, better, best. Uh, Progress is better, but they have no sense of what is best. One writer put it this way, the belief that humans are gradually improving is a central article of faith of modern humanism. When wrenched from monotheistic religion, however, it is not so much false as meaningless. To call oneself progressive is almost a form of self-congratulation. I'm making progress. I am progressive. And yet there is the reality of death. The progressive often takes over the monotheistic view of life and it is absolutist, it is militant. We are right, and we are going to make progress. One of the things, and as a historian, I find this particularly distasteful, is there is a disdain for the past. I don't want to know anything about the past, because that's lower, we're, we're making progress. We're going. So why would we look backward on those things that are lower than us? There's a blindness to the reality of human depravity. Um, Edwin Gibbon, who's best known for his book, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, wrote this. It may be safely presumed that no people, unless the force of nature is changed, will relapse into their original barbarisms. We may therefore acquiesce to the pleasing conclusion that every age of the world has increased and still increases, the real wealth, the happiness, the knowledge, and perhaps the virtue of the human race. Um, when did he write this? He wrote this right before and he lived during the French Revolution, the Reign of Terror, which until the Holocaust was sort of the epitome of evil. And yet he's like, no, people would never, they would never go back to that because we're progressing. What is death? We've been talking about, but what is it? What is the essence of it? Like it or not, the Christian view is that death was imposed on humanity by God. God told Adam and Eve, the day you eat of that, you will surely die. Physical death is nothing less than the radical separation of the two entities that compose us. But again, we want to be careful because you may remember when I talked about what is a human being, it's not like a letter put into an envelope, a spirit into a body. I mean, we are one And so death is something quite radical in which these things are torn apart. It's not like opening an envelope and pulling out the letter. It's something that is one that is suddenly broken into two parts. We've talked about when Adam and Eve sinned that a number of deaths did occur. There was spiritual death, they were separated from God. There was psychological death, they were separated from themselves. That's why they were afraid. There was social death. They were separated from each other. That's why they covered themselves with leaves. And there was ecological death. They were separated from nature. But usually when we think of death, we think of physical death. The soul is wrenched from the body. And while James was making use of this as an illustration, I think what he says is, is helpful in this regard. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. That's what death is. When that which is immaterial, which you cannot see, is wrenched out of that which you can see, the body, that is death. Death involves the separation of body and soul. Jesus' last words on the cross point to this as well. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Simply put, the spirit of Jesus left his body and he breathed his last. His spirit went to be with the Father. His body was still on the cross. Death is separation. And in this separation, certain things need to be emphasized. First of all, death is unnatural. Okay? It is the result of sin. It's not a natural part of life. It is rather a violent An unnatural intrusion into our experience, our existence as human beings. This is not what we were made for until Adam and Eve sinned. One writer has written, I think, uh, hopefully or helpfully on this. Contrary to many modern myths about death, that death is a natural part of life, the cessation of existence, that there is a natural dignity in dying well that the Bible paints its portrait of death with the most stark and sobering of colors. Nowhere in the Bible is death treated as something natural, as something that can be easily domesticated or treated as part of life. No encouragement is given us in the Bible to minimize the terror and fearfulness of death, our last enemy. Death is the last enemy. The death in the human race began with the fall into sin. It is the divinely appointed punishment for humanity's disobedience. Adam was told that if he ate of the tree, he would surely die. And Adam became liable to death through his blatant act of disobedience. As Paul writes in Romans, particularly in Romans 5, sin and death are inseparably linked. So the essence of death is the separation of the soul from the body. It is an unnatural separation. But the second thing that we see is that death is temporary. The separation of body and spirit is temporary. All of history is moving to that moment when the Lord Jesus will return in glory and power. And the souls and the bodies of all human beings will be reunited. Then comes the day of judgment. First the day of resurrection and then the day of judgment. Jesus spoke of this in John five. Do not be amazed at this for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Death is unnatural, death is temporary. We were not made for death. The experience tears us apart. Literally, when one dies, the soul is taken from the body but emotionally, for those of us who are left behind, the passing, the death of a loved one, is, it tears us apart. However, between our deaths and the return of Jesus is an intermediate state. That is, we, if we die before Jesus comes back, what do we do until he comes back? We are in an intermediate state Which is very real But again is also temporary We are told about one who dies in the Lord and That the Lord will return in power and glory So if we die before the Lord Jesus comes back That death is temporary We will be in an intermediate state We will be with the Lord Jesus Without our bodies And then when Jesus comes back There will be the resurrection and our bodies and souls will be reunited. I would say this is a great mystery. Paul said as much. It's a great mystery. We shall not all sleep. The question we have to consider today is what happens after death. Have you noticed something? That in dealing with this, the Christian worldview assumes that there is something after death. Okay, what happens after death? As Christians, we assume it's part of our worldview that in fact something happens. In the Sermon on the Mount, um, you may remember Jesus said, "If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye, you know, offends you, causes you to sin, pluck it out. That it's better to go. Uh, it's better not to go into hell having your whole body than in fact." to be caused to go into hell because you continue to sin because of those two parts of your body. It's better that the body not be thrown into hell. It's like, wait a minute, I, I, I thought death was the end of things. No, no, there's something after that. And a kingdom worldview says, in fact, there is something after death. The cyclical view says that there is, but it's just another life, And then another death and another life and another death. And it just keeps going on and on and on. Salvation for them is seen as escaping from that. Whereas for us as God's people, our redemption happens at the resurrection. Our time here is limited. There's a beginning. There's an end. But one day we will be given that life which is eternal. By the way, the chronological view does not believe in an after. It doesn't believe in an after. And that's why I think on some level there's this push to achieve immortality of some kind. You know, download your consciousness into a computer or somehow achieve immortality. I was talking to someone after the service the other week. One of the most tragic things I remember reading is uh, Carl Sagan, uh, who held to the chronological view. He was not a Christian, not a theist at all, Um, that on his deathbed he said to his wife this is it we will never see each other again this is it it's the end of the story this is not a Christian worldview there is something that comes after death and that is the resurrection we hold that there is something after death and it is something which is in God's hands God gave us life he will carry us through death in the intermediate state, and then we will be resurrected and spend eternity with him. The resurrection of Jesus is proof of this. I don't know if you're familiar with Acts uh, 17 when Paul went to Mars Hill, to the Areopagus, and he spoke to the philosophers there. And he said at the end of his sermon, this his presentation, that God, there will come a day when God will judge the world. So that's after death. God will judge the world. And he has given proof of this. By the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tells us that there is something after death. That death as unnatural as it is. Is temporary. And one day when the Lord Jesus comes. We will have a life forever with him. What that will be like, I can't begin to imagine, because here I am limited, here I am bound by time. When we're resurrected, that will no longer be true. But beyond that, I don't know. But in the same way that God gave us life and has carried each one of us through this past year, he will carry us through death to the resurrection. Let's pray together. Our Father, these are things we'd rather not talk about, think about. Imagine if we don't, that they will just go away. But we are finite, we are fragile. We are born, we grow, we grow old, and then one day we will die. But you are there at every phase, every step of the way. As David said, the the days of our lives are written down. Even before we are born, you know the days of our lives. And by worrying, we cannot add a single hour to our existence. Our existence is in your hands. I said earlier, we live not only in a pandemic of COVID, but also a pandemic of fear, a fear of death. And indeed, it is a great terror, but we need to recognize that it is unnatural. It is also temporary, and you are with us in life and in death and in the resurrection. Help us to recognize, to have the hope that you give our lives meaning. There are times when we despair and wonder if our existence has had any value whatsoever. And that's not for us to say. It's in your hands. We're made in your image. you love us. you set your son for us. Our lives do have meaning, and you're the one who assigns that meaning, not us in our pride or in a false pride, imagine that we have failed miserably. We are in your hands, and we always have been. And now as we come to the end of this year, a most difficult year, we commit ourselves once again into your care Help us to recognize, as feeble as we are, that you've always been there with us. We are not alone. And may we trust you and know that you love us. And you gave proof of that by sending your son who died a horrible death, but then was resurrected And one day, by your grace, we will be as well. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us. May we, in the days to come, be reminded by your spirit that you're with us every step of the way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.